Hello, and welcome to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for Friday, January 12th. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. We'll start with the weather. Today will be cloudy, windy, and cold with a high of 9 degrees. Tonight there will be a little snow at times with a low of negative 5 degrees. Saturday will be very windy and frigid with a high of minus 1 degree. And in other weather-related news, snow is back in Siouxland. Wind, snow, frigid temperatures expected. Second major winter storm of the week approaches. Earl Horlick reports from Sioux City. Siouxland may see anywhere from 6 to 10 inches of new snow when winter weather returns with a vengeance on Thursday. This new batch of white stuff will be on top of the more than 11 inches of snow that Sioux City received Monday night into Tuesday morning. The National Weather Service in Sioux Falls has declared a winter storm warning for Buena Vista, Cherokee, Ida, and Woodbury in Iowa, and Dakota and Dixon counties in Nebraska from noon Thursday to midnight Friday night. Due to the anticipated weather forecast, the Sioux City Community School District announced it will dismiss two hours early on Thursday. All classes and activities will be canceled. According to meteorologist Matthew Myers, the snow should reach Sioux City at approximately 4 p.m. Thursday, with the majority of snow falling Thursday night into the midday hours on Friday. By Friday, northwest winds of 20 to 25 miles per hour may be gusting to up to 40 miles per hour, he said. With the new snow as well as the snow already on the ground, there will be plenty of blowing snow, making travel travel very difficult to nearly impossible by Friday afternoon. Gusting winds will also send temps plummeting from Thursday's forecast high of 12 to the nighttime low of around 2 to Friday's high of 7, with wind chill values as low as minus 19 degrees. This weekend we'll see some of the coldest temperatures of the season, with Saturday's high not expected to rise above zero and Saturday night's low dropping down to bone chilling at 20 below. Meyer said cold wind chills as low as 25 below zero can cause frostbite on exposed skin in as little as 30 minutes. Currently, many streets have snowbound vehicles that are creating both a traffic hazard and not allowing city crews to remove snow. Sioux City Police Sergeant Tom Gill will be ticketing or towing away vehicles in order to help city crews do their job. That is something that Sioux City Field Manager Patrick Simons would appreciate. I'd like to remind citizens to keep parked vehicles off of the streets as much as possible, he said. That will make the job of our road crew easier and perhaps make the process go faster than everybody involved. Despite that, Sioux City Field Service Manager Patrick Simons said road crews will continue to work around the clock until the snow stops. This week has been tough because we were able to clear our number one and number two priority streets and were starting on residential streets when new snow came down Wednesday night, he said. Then we had to start over on the priority ones and two with a new system coming on top of that. Simons anticipates his crews will be working around the clock throughout the weekend. Judge strikes down gender balance requirement. The ruling comes as Reynolds seeks to remove requirement for boards. Caleb McCullough reports from Des Moines. A law requiring Iowa's State Judicial Nominating Commission to have an equal number of men and women is unconstitutional, a federal judge ruled Thursday. 
The decision, which permanently halts enforcement of the 1987 law, came after a lawsuit brought by the California-based Pacific Legal Foundation on behalf of Iowans who argued they were unfairly barred from being elected to the commission because of their gender. Iowa's Judicial Nominating Committee Commission, which makes recommendations for judge appointments, is made up of nine members, eight of which are elected by Iowa lawyers. State law requires that there be two members of different genders from each congressional district. State law also requires members of most other boards and commissions to be gender balanced, but Thursday's decision applies only to the State Judicial Nominating Commission. The legal foundation suing the state argued the rules were a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which guarantees equal protection under the law. In her ruling, U.S. District Judge Stephanie Rose said that there is not sufficient gender discrimination in the commission to justify having the state-mandated quota in place. Rose said the law would have survived legal scrutiny at the time it was written because there was a total absence of women on the commission. Today, though, she said the court did not find evidence of discrimination. This is not to say that gender discrimination does not exist. It plainly does across the spectrum of jobs in this country. But the evidence presented to the court does not establish this fact in this commission in this state at this time, the order reads. Rose also noted in the order the law also could bar women from sitting on the commission as it prevents two women from serving in the same congressional district at once. Laura Dang. D'Agostino, a lawyer with Pacific Legal Foundation, said in a statement that the repeal of the decision was a victory for the Iowans who challenged the law. We are extremely pleased with the court's decision today, D'Agostino said. Our clients, Rachel <coughs> Rack Law, Micah Breckmeyer, and Charles Hurley, are vindicated for their courage in standing up against this discriminatory statute. She also said the decision should be extended to Iowa's gender balance requirements for other boards and commissions, as well as similar quotas in other states. All Iowans should celebrate that result, D'Agostino said. We are hopeful that the Iowa legislature takes this cue from the court and repeals the state's remaining gender balance laws. We are also hopeful that other states across the country take notice. Stephen Davis, a spokesperson for the Iowa Judicial Branch, said the branch does not comment on pending litigation. A state panel tasked with reviewing Iowa's boards and commissions included a recommendation to repeal the gender balance laws in its recommendations to Governor Kim Reynolds last year. Reynolds' office said this week she would propose legislation to carry out the panel's recommendations, including the gender balance requirements for boards and commissions. Gill running for eighth term as county auditor. Caitlin Yamada reports from Sioux City. Pat Gill announced Wednesday plans to run for his eighth term as Woodbury County Auditor, Recorder, and Commissioner of Elections. Gill, the lone elected Democratic official in Woodbury County, said it is more important than ever to have someone with experience in the office to defend the integrity of elections. In 2020, Gill defeated Barbara Parker, a Republican from Salix and former city clerk there, 23,031 to 20,441, to win another four-year term. Gill was first elected in 1996. The auditor oversees budgets for all government 
governmental entities, insurance policies, and surety bonds, alcohol and tobacco licenses, and payroll. The auditor is also the clerk to the Board of Supervisors. The recorder oversees vital records, land and records management, and real estate departments. Gill said in his time as Commissioner of Elections, the legislation has continued to put more restrictions on voting, and over the last few years, there have been unprecedented attacks on elections. I think it's important to have someone in the office that has the experience and really cares about the integrity and working to restore that, he said. A former state legislator, Gill was elected to Iowa House District 2 in 1990 and 92. In November, Gill testified in the trial of Kim Taylor, who is facing 52 charges related to voter fraud. As Woodbury County election workers processed absentee ballots during the June 2020 primary election, they alerted Gill to what they considered an unusual number of write-in votes on Republican ballots cast for Jeremy Taylor for both Woodbury County Board of Supervisors, County Auditor, and Recorder. At the time, there was no way to see who had submitted the ballots because they had been separated from the envelopes. But a few months later, just before the general election, Gill had suspicious ballots he could trace, and he reported it to the FBI. On November 21st, a federal jury found Taylor guilty of 52 counts of voter fraud for running a scheme in which she tried to stuff the ballot box for Jeremy Taylor, who ran unsuccessfully for the Republican nomination for a U.S. House seat in the 2020 primary before winning election to the Woodbury County Board of Supervisors that fall. Gill said during the trial, it was alleged that he was proceeding with the voter fraud claims against the Taylors to put himself into a position to run for the Woodbury County Board of Supervisors. Gill said that was far from the truth. So far, no one else has announced the intention to run for the auditor position. The candidate filing period for county offices is March 4th through March 22nd for the primary. The primary will take place June 4th, with the general election scheduled for November 5th. Fire Department offers tips on reducing fire risk in winter. Nick Hytrek reports from Sioux City. The cause of a fire that destroyed a Sioux City house on Wednesday was not weather-related, but with more snow and sub-zero temperatures on the way, residents can take a few simple steps to reduce fire risk in their homes. Firefighters spent nearly six hours extinguishing a fire that destroyed a home at 2811 Myrtle Street Wednesday. Deputy Fire Marshal John Nelson said Thursday the fire originated in the kitchen and was ignited by cooking oil that had been left unattended. The family safely evacuated the house before firefighters arrived, but a dog died in the fire. Cooking is the leading cause of house fires locally and nationally, according to a Sioux City Fire Rescue news release. Home residents should remain in the kitchen while cooking and be on the lookout for overheating. With temperatures forecast to dip well below zero this weekend, residents also should resist the urge to use cooking appliances as supplemental heating sources in the home. Nelson said space heaters are a common cause of fires during winter months. Turn off space heaters when leaving the room or the home and clear space around them and all heating sources such as furnaces and fireplaces. Make sure you keep three feet of clearance, Nelson said. Keep things tidy, organized, and leave some room. Candles also should 
be extinguished when leaving so they don't burn down and potentially cause a fire. With home residents more likely to stay inside during the cold weather, it's important to make sure all smoke and carbon monoxide detectors are operational so they can alert everyone in case of danger. Nelson said homeowners should clear snow from exterior furnace exhaust pipes so they don't become clogged and cause deadly carbon monoxide gas to build up inside the home. MidAmerican Energy also advises homeowners to clear snow and ice from exterior gas meters because accumulated snow or ice can put stress on the meter and potentially cause a gas leak. Residents can save time for firefighters who may have to respond to a fire in their neighborhood by clearing snow from fire hydrants. Nelson said hydrants should have three feet of clearance on all sides. And now these local news briefs. Monona County authorities find person of interest from Ottawa, Iowa. The Monona County Sheriff's Office located a person it was seeking Thursday in connection with an ongoing investigation. Derek Lee Meadows, 36, was arrested Thursday afternoon. Earlier in the day, the Sheriff's Office had requested the public's help in locating him. At 6 a.m. Thursday, the Sheriff's Office, with the assistance of an Iowa State Patrol tactical team, executed a search warrant at 329 East Main Street in Ute as part of an ongoing investigation. Lavelle Annette Meadows, 71, and Larry Lee Meadows, 69, both of Ute, were arrested on felony drug possession charges and an outstanding felony warrant, according to a Monona County Sheriff's Office news release. Man pleads not guilty of lighting Molotov cocktails from Sioux City. A Sioux City man has pleaded not guilty of lighting Molotov cocktails in his neighbor's yard. Quan Thak, 35, entered his written plea Wednesday in Woodbury County District Court to four counts of possession of explosive or incendiary materials or devices and three counts of third-degree arson. Thack is accused of carrying glass bottles containing flammable liquid and a flammable wick to his neighbor's house in the 100 block of Alice Street on at least four occasions and igniting them. According to court documents, Thack intended to intimidate or scare his neighbors because he believed they had trespassed on or around his property. According to court documents, Thack entered his neighbor's yard on November 5th and smashed a Molotov cocktail on the sidewalk, causing a fireball. On December 7th, Thack ignited another bottle filled with flammable liquid and placed it on the front steps of his neighbor's home. On December 13th and again on January 4th, Thack is accused of lighting a Molotov cocktail and leaving it in his neighbor's backyard. In each incident, there was little damage. Residents asked to dig out snowbound vehicles from Sioux City. The Sioux City Police Department is asking residents to shovel out their snowbound vehicle to make shoveling out their snowbound vehicles a priority. According to a statement from the department, many streets have snowbound vehicles that are creating a traffic hazard and not allowing city crews to appropriately remove snow. People will be ticketing and or towing snowbound vehicles in effort to assist city crews working to clear the streets. Your cooperation will ensure the safety of your fellow residents and the city staff who are working on your behalf, the statement said. And finally, Sioux City Fire. Check furnace intake for snow. From Sioux City. Sioux City Fire Rescue is reminding homeowners with high-efficiency furnaces to check their fresh air intake and exhaust pipes to ensure they are free of snow. 
These pipes, which are usually white plastic, come out the side of the home. A blocked intake pipe or exhaust vent could result in carbon monoxide poisoning. Dryer vents should also be checked frequently during periods of heavy or blowing snow, Sioux City Fire Rescue said in a statement. Carbon monoxide, also known as CO, is called the invisible killer because it's a colorless, odorless, and poisonous gas. More than 150 people in the U.S. die every year from accidental CO poisoning from generators or fuel-burning appliances, such as furnaces, stoves, water heaters, and fireplaces. Breathing CO at high levels can kill you, the statement said. Sioux City Fire Rescue also advises that residents have working carbon monoxide alarms inside their homes, which provide an early warning of increasing CO levels. These alarms should be placed in a central location outside each sleeping area and on every level of your home. If the alarm goes off or you think you may have CO in your home, call 911. Now we turn to national and world news. New York fraud case, Trump speaks up at trial. Judge receives bomb threat at home as legal proceedings wrap up. From New York. Barred from giving a formal closing argument, Donald Trump wrested an opportunity to speak in court at the conclusion of his New York civil fraud trial Thursday, unleashing a barrage of attacks and complaints in a six-minute diatribe before the judge cut him off. Trump spoke as the judge was trying to find out if the former president would follow rules requiring him to keep his remarks focused on matters related to the trial. Instead, Trump simply launched into his speech. I am an innocent man, Trump protested. I am being persecuted by someone running for office, and I think you have to go outside the bounds. Judge Arthur Ngoron, who earlier denied Trump's extraordinary request to give his own closing statement, let him continue almost uninterrupted for what amounted to a brief personal summation, then cut him off for a scheduled lunch break. Trump's in-court remarks, which were not televised, ensured a tumultuous final day for a trial over allegations that he habitually exaggerated his wealth on financial statements he provided to banks, insurance companies, and others. New York Attorney General Letitia James, a Democrat, sued Trump in 2022 under a state law that gives her broad power to investigate allegations of persistent fraud in business dealings. She wants the judge to impose $370 million in penalties and forbid Trump from doing business in the state. Thursday's exchanges took place hours after authorities responded to a bomb threat at the judge's house in New York City's suburbs. The scare didn't delay the start of court proceedings. Trump, the leading contender for the Republican presidential nomination, has disparaged Angoron throughout the trial, accusing him in a social media post Wednesday night of working closely with James. On Wednesday, Ngoron rejected an unusual plan by Trump to deliver his own closing remarks in addition to summations from his legal team. The sticking point was that Trump's lawyers would not agree to the judge's demand that he stick to relevant matters. After two of Trump's lawyers delivered traditional closing arguments Thursday, one of them, Christopher Kies, asked the judge again whether Trump could speak. Ngoron asked Trump whether he would abide by the guidelines. Trump then launched into his remarks, Control your client, Ngoron warned Kais. U.S. bombing Houthi militants. Diplomat secures help for rebuilding Gaza, but Israel is not on board. From Washington. 
The U.S. and British militaries bombed more than a dozen sites used by the Iranian-backed Houthis in Yemen on Thursday in a massive retaliatory strike using warship and submarine-launched Tomahawk missiles and fighter jets, U.S. officials said. The military targets included air defense and coastal radar sites, as well as drone and missile storage and launching locations, they said. President Joe Biden said the strikes were meant to demonstrate the U.S. and its allies will not tolerate the militant group's ceaseless attacks in the Red Sea. He noted the strikes came after attempts at diplomatic negotiations and careful deliberation. Earlier in the day, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken wrapped up a Mideast tour and claimed modest success in getting wide regional support for planning for reconstruction and governance in Gaza after Israel's war with Hamas ends. However, Israel's far-right government is not on board with several key points. The Yemen strikes marked the first U.S. military response to the Houthis' persistent campaign of drone and missile attacks on commercial ships since the start of the Israel-Hamas war October 7th. They came a week after the White House and partner nations issued a final warning to the Houthis to seize the attacks or face potential military action. On Tuesday, the Houthi rebels fired their largest ever barrage of drones and missiles targeting shipping in the Red Sea. In a call with reporters, senior administration and military officials said that after Tuesday's attacks, Biden convened his national security team and was presented with military options for response. He then directed Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin to carry out the retaliatory strikes. The Houthis did not immediately offer any damage or casualty information. The group, which carried out 27 attacks involving dozens of drones and missiles since November 19th, previously warned any attack by U.S. forces on its sites in Yemen will spark a fierce military response. A high-ranking Houthi official, Ali al-Kahum, vowed there would be retaliation. The battle will be bigger and beyond the imagination and expectation of the Americans and the British, he said in a social media post. South Africa accuses Israel of Palestinian genocide. Lawyers argue for military campaign to stop in the Gaza Strip. From The Hague, Netherlands. South Africa formally accused <clears throat> Israel of committing genocide against Palestinians and pleaded Thursday with the United Nations top court to order an immediate halt to Israeli military operations in Gaza. Israel, which was founded in the aftermath of the Holocaust, vehemently denies the allegations. Israeli leaders took the rare step of engaging with the court to defend their international reputation. Israel often boycotts international tribunals or UN investigations, saying they are unfair and biased. During opening statements at the International Court of Justice, South African lawyers said the latest Gaza war is part of decades of Israeli oppression of Palestinians. The court has the benefit of the past 13 weeks of evidence that shows incontrovertibly a pattern of conduct and related intention that amounts to a plausible claim of genocidal acts, South African lawyer Adila Hassim told the judges at The Hague. South Africa is seeking preliminary orders to compel Israel to stop its military campaign in Gaza, where more than 23,000 people have been killed so far, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, which is run by Hamas. Hunter Biden appears in court after deal flops. 
President's son pleads not guilty to federal tax-related charges. From Los Angeles, President Joe Biden's son pleaded not guilty Thursday to federal tax charges filed after the collapse of a plea deal that could have spared him the spectacle of a criminal trial during the 2024 campaign. Hunter Biden is accused of nine felony and misdemeanor tax offenses. The charges stem from what federal prosecutors say was a four-year scheme to skip out on paying the $1.4 million he owed to the IRS, and instead use the money to fund an extravagant lifestyle that by his own admission included drugs and alcohol. The judge set a tentative trial date of June 20th. Meanwhile, Hunter Biden has also been charged in Delaware with lying in October 2018 on a federal form for gun purchasers when he swore he wasn't using or addicted to illegal drugs. The accusations all come from a years-long federal investigation into Hunter Biden's tax and business dealings that had been expected to wind down over the summer with a plea deal in which he would have gotten two years probation after pleading guilty to misdemeanor tax charges. The deal unraveled when a federal judge began to question it. Safety Regulators Probe Boeing Plane Door Plugs The Federal Aviation Administration is investigating whether Boeing failed to make sure a panel that blew off a jetliner during a flight last week was safe and manufactured to meet the design regulators approved. The FAA investigation focuses on plugs used to fill spots for extra exits when those doors are not required on Boeing 737 MAX 9 jetliners. The FAA asked Boeing to tell the agency the root cause of the problem and steps the company will take to prevent a recurrence. Boeing said Thursday it would cooperate with the investigation and another by the National Transportation Safety Board. NTSB investigators this week said they haven't found four bolts that are used to help secure the 63-pound door plug. They are not sure whether the bolts were there before the plane took off. The door plugs are installed by Boeing supplier Spirit Aero Systems, but investigators have not said which company's employees last worked on the plug that suffered the blowout. Jurors opt not to indict woman who miscarried from Columbus, Ohio. An Ohio woman will not face a criminal charge for her handling of a home miscarriage, a grand jury decided Thursday. The Trumbull County Prosecutor's Office said grand jurors declined to return an indictment for an abuse of a corpse charge against Brittany Watts, 34, of Warren, resolving a case that drew national attention for its implications for pregnant women as states hash out new laws governing reproductive health care access after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade abortion protections. City prosecutors said Watts miscarried, flushed and scooped out the toilet, then left the fetus lodged in the pipes. An autopsy determined it died in utero and identified no recent injuries. Her doctor had told her she was carrying a non-viable fetus and to have her labor induced or risk death, according to case records. Watchdog The Pentagon's internal watchdog said Thursday he will review the secrecy surrounding Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's hospitalization and why the Defense Department waited days to inform the White House. Austin, 70, is still in the hospital due to complications from prostate cancer surgery. 
Harvard. Several Jewish students filed a lawsuit Wednesday accusing Harvard University of becoming a bastion of rampant anti-Jewish hatred and harassment. Inflation. Higher energy and housing prices boosted overall U.S. inflation in December, a Labor Department report showed Thursday. Overall prices rose 0.3% from November and 3.4% from 12 months earlier. Ukraine war. Shortfalls in required monitoring by U.S. officials mean the U.S. cannot track more than $1 billion in weapons and military equipment provided to Ukraine to fight invader Russia, according to a Pentagon audit released Thursday. Catholic Church. Catholic bishops of Africa and Madagascar issued a statement Thursday refusing to follow Pope Francis's declaration allowing priests to offer blessings to same-sex couples. They asserted such unions are contrary to the will of God. And finally, mortgages. The average rate on a 30-year U.S. mortgage rose for the second time in as many weeks to 6.66% from 6.62% last week. Mortgage buyer Freddie Mac said Thursday. A year ago, the rate averaged 6.33%. Once again, you are listening to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for Friday, January 12th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now a little more information about the upcoming Iowa caucus. Feeling caucus confusion? A political junkie's guide to how Iowa helps shape race. Robert Yoon reports. The race for the White House officially begins in less than two weeks, and despite some prolonged jockeying over the election calendar, the long primary season will once again begin in Iowa with a caucus process that has served as the lead-off voting event since the 1970s. While Iowa has played an outsized role in presidential politics for generations, the details of how the caucuses actually work can surprise and mystify even hardcore political junkies. The Republican process this year is largely unchanged, but there are significant changes to the traditional voting schedule on the Democratic side. Much of what you think you know about the Iowa caucuses may no longer be applicable in 2024. Since the contested Iowa caucuses of 2016 and 2020 may seem like a long time ago, here's an update of what they are, how they work, and why they matter. What is a caucus? A political caucus is a gathering of people with a shared interest or goal. The Iowa caucuses are a series of local meetings held throughout the state where participants conduct party business and usually indicate their preference for a presidential nominee to represent the party on the November ballot. It's also the first step in a months-long process to select people to serve as delegates to the national party conventions this summer. How are caucuses and primaries different? One of the main differences between caucuses and primaries is the amount of time allotted for voting to occur and the methods by which people can vote. In a primary, people can show up at the polls and cast ballots throughout primary election day, from the early morning until polls close in the evening. They have the option of casting an absentee ballot if they can't make it to the polls on the day of the primary, and in some states, people may vote before the primary election. The Iowa caucuses, on the other hand, are held in the evening and voters must attend in person in order to participate, except in a few isolated instances. Caucuses are run by political parties, whereas primaries are usually, but not always, run by the state. Are both parties holding caucuses this year? Sort of. 
While both the state Republican and Democratic parties will hold caucuses on January 15th, only the Republican event will have an immediate binding impact on the presidential race. In a departure from previous years, the Democratic caucuses will be held only to conduct administrative party business and to start the process of choosing delegates to the national conventions. Iowa Democrats will express their preferences for their party's presidential nominee through a mail-in voting process, the result of which will not be known until March. What's at stake? For Democrats, nothing is at stake, since the 2024 caucuses will have no bearing on the presidential race. For Republicans, there are usually two prizes in the Iowa caucuses, delegates and bragging rights. Iowa Republican voters will indicate their picks for the party's presidential nominee, and the results of that vote will determine how many of the state's 40 convention delegates each candidate will receive. Candidates win national convention delegates in direct proportion to the percentage of the vote they receive. There is no minimum threshold required to qualify for delegates. However, Iowa makes up a minuscule share of the total number of Republican delegates nationwide, only 1.6%. So, in theory, a candidate who performs poorly in Iowa has plenty of opportunities in the remaining states and territories to more than make up the difference. But because of Iowa's first-in-the-nation placement in the presidential campaign calendar, the caucus results often give a disproportionate boost to the winners and to those who perform strongly or surpass expectations, while often having a winnowing effect on the field by nudging underperforming candidates out of the race. They can also signal to voters in other states, fairly or unfairly, which candidates are possibly on a better footing in the race for the nomination and have momentum, or the big mo, as candidate George H.W. Bush called it after winning the 1980 caucuses, heading into the next contests. How will GOP caucuses work in 2024? There will be two main agenda items at every Republican caucus site holding a binding vote for the party's presidential nominee, and electing delegates to attend county conventions, which is the next step in the multi-tiered process of electing delegates to attend the Republican National Convention in Milwaukee this summer. The binding presidential vote functions essentially like a party-run primary, only with very limited polling hours and no accommodation for absentee voting, except for a tiny handful of overseas and military voters. There are, <coughs> pardon me, there are speeches on behalf of various candidates before the voting and a variety of party business after the vote. Individual caucus chairs are allowed to exercise some discretion in how to conduct the vote, but the voting is done by secret ballot and there is no set list of candidates. Voters must be given the option to vote for any candidate they choose. In the past, some caucus sites have pre-printed the names of major candidates and provided a write-in option, but typically voters vote by writing the name of a candidate on a blank slip of paper. There is no walking around the caucus room to form candidate preference groups. That voting method was a feature of Democratic caucuses from 1972 to 2020, but is no longer in use by either party in 2024. The Republican caucuses will convene statewide at 7 p.m. local time, or 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and begin with the election of a caucus chair and secretary. Only registered Republicans may participate in the caucuses, and only in their designated home precincts. 
However, Iowans may register or change their party affiliation on caucus day. Voters must turn 18 by the November general election in order to participate. How will Democratic caucuses work in 2024? Iowa Democrats had to completely redo their caucus and presidential delegate selection process after their 2020 caucuses devolved into and failed to produce a clear, undisputed winner. This year, Iowa Democrats will still hold caucuses on the same day as Republicans, but unlike in previous years, caucus goers will not vote or indicate their pick to represent the party on the November presidential ballot. Instead, they will vote for a party nominee through a mail-in voting process that begins January 12th and concludes on March 5th. The Democratic caucuses on January 15th will elect delegates to the county conventions in March, which is the next step in selecting the individuals to serve as delegates to the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in August. National Convention delegates will be required to vote for a presidential nominee in accordance with the results of a mail of the mail-in voting process. And now these stories in sports, starting with the NFL. End of an era. Pats part with Belichick. From Foxborough, Massachusetts. Bill Belichick had a vision of building the kind of sustained championship football team that had rarely been seen before in the NFL when he was hired by the New England Patriots. He walks away feeling like it was a job well done. The six-time NFL champion agreed to part ways as the coach of the Patriots, ending his 24-year tenure as the architect of the most decorated dynasty of the league's Super Bowl era. It was so many fond memories and thoughts that I think about the Patriots, Belichick said on Thursday in a media availability with owner Robert Kraft. I'll always be a Patriot. I look forward to coming back here, but at this time, we're going to move on, and I look forward, excited, for the future. Neither Belichick nor Kraft took questions, though Kraft said during an availability later in the day that the team missing the playoffs in three of the past four seasons factored into wanting to sever their relationship. What's gone on here the last three to four years isn't what we want so we have a responsibility to do what we can to fix it to the best of our ability, Kraft said. Speaking to reporters from the podium where he had given so many terse, non-responsive post-game recaps, Belichick appeared in a jacket and tie and spoke first, followed by Kraft. The coach even smiled a couple of times, including when he conceded respect for the media, even though we don't always see eye to eye. He also thanked the fans for the send-offs, the parades, the Sundays, but most of his time was spent thanking the people throughout the organization, especially the more than 1,000 Patriots players he coached in his time here. Players win games in the NFL, Belichick said. I've been very, very fortunate to coach some of the greatest players to ever play the game. Kraft called the relationship a marriage that had required work and had come to an end. I'm very proud that our partnership lasted for 24 years, Kraft said. Bill has taught me a lot over those years, and we had high expectations for what we could achieve together. I think we were the only ones who had those expectations, and I think it's safe to say we exceeded them. We did, Belichick agreed. Thanks to you, Kraft said. Belichick, 71, became just the third coach in NFL history to reach 300 career regular season victories earlier this season, joining Hall of Famers Don Shula and George Hallis. 
With 333 wins, including the playoffs, Belichick trails only Shula at 347 for the record for victories by a coach. But the Patriots ended this season 4-13, Belichick's worst record in 29 seasons as an NFL head coach. It supplanted the 5-11 mark he managed in his last year in Cleveland in 1995 and again in his first year in New England in 2000. Including the playoffs, he ends his Patriots tenure with a 333-178 overall record. Belichick is expected to resume his pursuit of Shula's record elsewhere. Kraft alluded to that, saying complete closure for their relationship couldn't come while he's still coaching. But I hope when that's all over, we can do something that properly honors him and respects him for what he's done with us, Kraft said. In other NFL stories, Chiefs Reed Kelsey not pondering retirement. From Kansas City, Missouri. Chiefs coach Andy Reid doesn't sound as if he's ready to follow Bill Belichick and Pete Carroll into the next phase of his career, nor does Kansas City tight end Travis Kelsey, for that matter. After the announcement Thursday that Belichick was out as the coach of New England after 24 seasons, and news the previous day that Carroll was stepping down as the coach in Seattle, the spotlight naturally turned to the 65-year-old Reed, who had to clap back at rumors about his retirement in the days before leading the Chiefs to the Super Bowl last season. I haven't even thought about that, Reed said Thursday, after the Chiefs concluded their final practice ahead of Saturday night's wildcard playoff game against the Miami Dolphins. I figured that would come up as you were asking me these questions about Belichick and Carroll, because I'm old, but I'm not that old. Reed will be chasing his 23rd playoff win Saturday night. Belichick holds the NFL record with 31 of them. Kelsey has been around for a lot of them. He arrived in Kansas City in 2013, the same year as Reed, and after missing most of his rookie season to injury, has put together one of the greatest runs by a tight end in NFL history. He's been voted All-Pro four times. He's been picked to the Pro Bowl nine times. He set, or is close to setting, just about every franchise record for a pass catcher, even though he is not a wide receiver. And despite turning 34 in October, Kelsey still caught 93 passes for 984 yards and five touchdowns while helping the Chiefs win an eighth straight AFC West title. And now these stories from the NBA. Portis Antetokounmpo sparked 25-0 spurt in Bucks blowout. From Milwaukee, Bobby Portis and Giannis Antetokounmpo Antito Compo combined to score 20 straight points during a 25-0 spurt midway through the first half, and the Milwaukee Bucks rolled to a 135-102 victory over the NBA-leading Boston Celtics on Thursday night. Portis scored 28, Antito Compo added 24, and both players had 12 rebounds to help the Bucks win for just the second time in six games. Damian Lillard chipped in 21 points while returning to Milwaukee's lineup after missing the Bucks' 132-116 home loss to the Utah Jazz on Monday for personal reasons. The Bucks led by as many as 43 points in Drew Holiday's return to Milwaukee, and their 75-38 lead at the break was their fourth biggest halftime advantage in franchise history. 
Peyton Pritchard scored 21 points and Sam Hauser 15 for the Celtics, who missed 16 of their first 17 three-point attempts and ended up going 9 of 34 overall. Cavaliers 111, Nets 102. Donovan Mitchell scored a season-high 45 points, and Cleveland beat Brooklyn in the NBA's third regular season game in Paris. Jared Allen had 12 points and 12 rebounds in his career-best eighth straight double-double in the Cavaliers' first regular season game outside of North America. McCall Bridges and Cam Thomas each scored 26 points for the Nets. Mitchell had his 16th 40-point game in just two seasons in Cleveland. He added 12 rebounds, 6 assists, and 4 steals, joining LeBron James as the only Cavaliers with at least 45 points, 10 boards, 5 assists, and 3 steals in a game. Thunder 139, Trailblazers 77. Shy Gilgius Alexander scored 31 points. Josh Giddy had a triple-double, and Oklahoma City rolled past visiting Portland, a 62-point victory that matched the fifth-largest route in NBA history. The Thunder shattered their previous record for victory margin of 45 points, set twice during the 2012-13 season. Oklahoma City was on the wrong end of the NBA's biggest blowout, losing by 73 to the Memphis Grizzlies on December 2, 2021. Mavericks 128, Knicks 124. Kyrie Irving scored 44 points, Tim Hardaway Jr. added 32 in his fifth start of the season, and Dallas, playing without Luka Doncic and two other starters, handed visiting New York its first loss in six games. Suns 127, Lakers 109. Bradley Beal scored 37 points, Devin Booker added 31, and Phoenix beat host Los Angeles, which dropped below 500 for the season. And in the NHL, Canucks Pedersen hits overtime winner. From Pittsburgh, Elias Pedersen scored on a breakaway in overtime, and the Vancouver Canucks beat the Pittsburgh Penguins 4-3 on Thursday. Pedersen took a lead pass from Philip Hronek and beat Tristan Jerry for his 22nd goal of the year and second of the game. Brock Bozer scored twice for the Canucks, while J.T. Miller added three assists. Sidney Crosby scored twice for the Penguins, including the tying goal with 28.2 seconds remaining in regulation to force OT. Kraken 4, Capitals 1. Joey Decord made 25 saves, Ty Cartier ended a lengthy goal drought, and Seattle beat host Washington for its eighth straight win. Decord is 7-0-0 in his past eight games with a 1.14 goal against average and a 9.66 save percentage. Panthers 3, Kings 2 in overtime. Sam Reinhardt scored on a backhander with less than a second to play in overtime and Florida rallied past visiting Los Angeles for its ninth straight win. Hurricane 6, Ducks 3. Seth Jarvis had a goal and two assists, and Carolina stretched its points streak to seven games by beating visiting Anaheim despite losing goalie Pyotr Kochetkov in the second period. Oilers 3, Red Wings 2 in overtime. Darnell Nurse scored 120 into overtime, and Edmonton beat host Detroit to match a franchise record with ninth straight wins. Sabres 5, Senators 3. 
Sage Thompson scored twice, and Buffalo handed visiting Ottawa its fifth straight loss, despite two goals from Claude Giraud. Lightning 4, Devils 3 in overtime. Defenseman Darren Radish scored 152 into overtime, and Tampa Bay beat visiting New Jersey. Islanders 4, Maple Leafs 3 in overtime. Matthew Barzal scored 21 seconds into overtime, and New York rallied from a 3-1 deficit to defeat visiting Toronto. Blues 4, Rangers 2. Jordan Cairo recorded a hat-trick, and St. Louis defeated visiting New York. Sharks 3, Canadiens 2. Mackenzie Blackwood made 33 shots, and San Jose won in Montreal to snap a 12-game losing streak. Jets 2, Blackhawks 1. Nicolaj Ellers and Gabriel Velarde scored in the third period, and Winnipeg rallied past visiting Chicago. Flames 6, Coyotes 2. Yegor Sharangovich had a hat trick, and Calgary rode a four-goal first period to a victory over host Arizona. And finally, Golden Knights 2, Bruins 1 in overtime. Alex Pietrangelo. Pietrangelo, scored 45 seconds into overtime, and Vegas defeated visiting Boston. And finally, one golfing story from the Sony Open. <clears throat> Davis handles the wind at Wyale to grab lead. Doug Ferguson reports from Honolulu. Cam Davis hopped islands in Hawaii and was happy to see the rust stayed back on Maui. He faced the strongest win Thursday and produced the best opening round in the Sony Open, an 8-under-62 for a two-shot lead. Davis lingered around the bottom of the pack last week at Kapalua until he finally got his game in order with a closing 65. Four days later, on a flat but windy Wayale Country Club course, it felt even better. I started figuring out what wasn't working, what was working, and Sunday last week, I started to put some consistent shots together, Davis said. I thought as long as I can build off that round and continue that on to this week and next week, that is the sort of momentum I was looking for. It was very cool to back it up with a really good round. Taylor Montgomery had it easier, playing six holes before 30 mile per hour gusts arrived along the shores around the bend from Diamond Head. He also had birdies on half his holes in a 64. The Sony Open marked the return of former U.S. Open champion Gary Woodland, who had brain surgery on September 18th to remove part of a tumor that was causing fear and anxiety, most of those thoughts centered around death. He only decided in the last week or so that he was ready to play, and then he found himself getting emotional when his name was announced on the tee. Hearing Topeka, Kansas, hearing my name called, there was a time when I didn't know if that was going to be called again, so it got me a little more than I thought it was going to, Woodland said. The score was a 71, and in some respects it was irrelevant. Probably the happiest I've ever been shooting over par, tell you that, Woodland said. The goal this week was to see how I was mentally, and I was really, really good. This was one of the hardest rounds I've ever had here and got off to a rough start. I was excited and was doing a lot of breathing trying to slow everything down because I was moving fast. I settled in, especially the last nine holes, and played really, really well. A lot to build on. 
Davis had the loudest gallery at Waiale, and not just because he was making birdies. His wife's entire family from Seattle came to cheer the Australian, and they even stuck around to cheer his post-round interview with Golf Channel. A lot of them haven't seen a golf tournament before, and it was really fun to put a good round together in front of them, Davis said. I'm glad I gave them something to cheer about. And that does it for this reading of the Sioux City Journal for Friday, January 12th. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thanks for listening. People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. At high doses, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like diclofenac, ibuprofen, or naproxen may increase the risk of kidney problems. The study that revealed this used de-identified medical records of more than 750,000 active-duty U.S. Army soldiers. Consequently, these were active young and middle-aged adults. During the time of the study, from 2011 through 2014, nearly 18% of these soldiers got a prescription for one to seven doses of an NSAID pain reliever in a month. Another 16% were prescribed more than seven doses in a month. Fewer than 1% of these people were subsequently diagnosed with acute or chronic kidney disease. Nevertheless, the rate of kidney trouble was about 20% higher among people who had received high-dose NSAIDs than among those who had taken none. The authors described the increased risk as modest but statistically significant. Another class of drugs that can lead to kidney injury is proton pump inhibitors. A data mining initiative of the FDA's Adverse Event Reporting System analyzed kidney-related side effects among 43,000 people who took a drug such as esomeprazole, lansoprazole, or omeprazole. Approximately 8,000 people taking a histamine 2 blocker such as ranitidine or famotidine served as controls since they take these drugs for similar symptoms. The researchers found that 5.6% of people on PPIs alone had a kidney-related side effect, while only 0.7% of those on H2 blockers did. Chronic kidney disease was 28 times more likely, and acute kidney injury was four times more likely among people taking PPIs. While this analysis shows association, not causation, there are previous studies linking PPIs and kidney damage. There's growing concern about a mysterious infectious disease that has been spreading among the wild deer population for decades. Scientists call it CWD, or chronic wasting disease. Hunters refer to this condition as zombie deer disease. It can also affect elk and moose. 
The CDC reports that this infectious disease has spread to wildlife in 24 states and two Canadian provinces. CWD was first detected in Colorado among captive deer in the 1960s and in the wild deer population in the 1980s. It's now affecting deer in the Midwest, Southwest, and some parts of the East Coast. The disease appears to be caused by a prion infection reminiscent of mad cow disease. An infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota has warned that hunters who eat contaminated deer meat may eventually develop the human equivalent of chronic wasting disease. Shoulder replacement surgery is becoming increasingly common. Now researchers writing in the BMJ say that patients should be warned that the risks are higher than originally thought. The investigators reviewed hospital and mortality records in the UK. When men between 50 and 59 have this type of shoulder surgery, one in four will need further surgery on that shoulder within five years. In addition, older people who underwent this kind of surgical procedure experienced high rates of serious adverse events. One in nine older women and one in five older men had an infection, major blood clot, heart attack or stroke, or died within three months. The authors of the study encouraged their colleagues to counsel patients about the risks as well as the benefits of this kind of surgery. Drug interactions are a serious hazard in hospitals and the community. If patients receive prescriptions for incompatible medications, they can experience severe side effects that may even be life-threatening. Electronic medical records are intended to warn prescribers and pharmacists about potentially dangerous interactions, but many do so indiscriminately. The result is something called alert fatigue. If clinicians receive too many warnings, they may not pay attention to the really important ones. A team at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital reviewed their alert system. They removed unnecessary alerts and provided additional information to the most important ones. After they finished, they tracked clinicians' reactions. Alert overrides dropped by 40%. One important change linked alerts to the patient's laboratory data, making them much more targeted. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.